Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Sebrow, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. The Definitive Rap is the official podcast of vinnews.com. This week, we observe Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day, where we honor the holy souls who perished in the Nazi death camps and the holy souls who miraculously survived. Shuls around the country have speakers and other events to to commemorate this most solemn day. So as I was searching for the ideal guest, I came across a Menachem Kaiser, a nice Jewish boy from New York who wrote a highly acclaimed book titled Plunder, a Memoir of Family Property and Nazi Treasure. Immediately, this caught my attention, so I'm not going to spoil the story for you. What I can say is that Menachem is a brilliant and gifted writer who is sensitive, sensible, and someone who fights for what he believes in. As a brief teaser, Menachem went to Poland on personal matters when he decided to look into real estate he believed his grandfather owned but lost after the Holocaust. I won't say anything more because I think the audience would rather hear from Menachem than from me, but rest assured we will have lots of questions for our guest. Bela? Thank you, Alan. Um, as, uh, as Alan just said, today is a very important day in history, Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. This day marks the 76th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Today is a day that must never be forgotten. As Elie Wiesel of Blessed Memory said, to forget the dead would be akin to killing them a second time. As we sorrowfully remember the over 6 million blessed precious souls that were murdered, we must also never forget how inconsequential Jews were deemed, that their personal possessions were taken from them by the Nazis. We have with us today Menachem Kaiser, who will tell us a story he wrote in his book about his grandfather's mission and pursuit to reclaim his family's apartment building in Sosnovich, Poland. Not only that, but what we have seen in many survivors is not only their will to live and move on to build beautiful families, but to bring justice to the atrocities. By brilliantly telling the story of his family, not only of loss of life, but loss of possessions, Menachem's writing focuses on Nazi treasure hunting, and our guest is continuing the legacy. Menachem also holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan and was a Fulbright Fellow to Lithuania. His writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, New York, and elsewhere. He also studied in various yeshivas, including the Mir. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. Menachem, we are incredibly honored to welcome you to the Definitive Rap. Thank you. Menachem, I understand that your grandfather passed before you were born. And your quest for bringing his story and consequently the story of other survivors kept alive. Please tell us how, how, how what you, what, what was it 
how and what was it that compelled you to take up your grandfather's battle to reclaim the family's apartment building in Sosnovich? Tell us what happened when you got there with the current occupants and your certain legal encounters. I mean, your, your book was incredible. I just couldn't put it down. But for our listening audience... Please. Uh, thank you, Bela. So I'll say my grandfather, Mayor Menachem Kaiser, who I'm named after, he was he died in April uh, 1977, about eight years uh, before I was born. And I'll also say, uh, I think this audience will understand more than most that tonight is actually his yard site. Oh, my gosh. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, tonight um, on the Chafzai and Nissan. And so uh, it's a, you know, particularly special to be talking about him. How apropos that this interview is taking place today, not just on on the remembrance, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, but right before his yard site. Unbelievable. So he died in 1977. I was born in 85. um, So obviously I didn't know him. But even more than that, I really didn't know much about him. Um, It's not to say anyone was covering it up, but he died when my father was in his early 20s. And so I didn't really have any image of him, um, didn't really have any memories, didn't really have any sense of who he was past like some very general sort of feelings and sentiments. And then I went to Poland uh, for the first time in 2011. And when I went for the first time, I really was not going for anything to do with uh, family history. I wasn't sort of going to look, it wasn't a roots trip. Um, I was going, I had spent a year in Lithuania. Uh, I had met some, I met the the rabbi of Galicia, the chief rabbi of Galicia, actually, mm-hmm. in Vilnius, and he invited me to come with him to Krakow for Rosh Hashanah. And once I was there, um, you know, I was like, okay, I'm here. I should just go see my grandfather's hometown. And I went. I called my father, asked him for if he had any addresses. He gave me this address, Malachovskego 12. Uh, back then, I couldn't pronounce it. And uh, I went to the building. I took some pictures, and I left. Like I had no reason to think I'd ever go back. Um, you know, a lot of us, when we go to that part of the world, we do a root strip. It feels like an obligation mm-hmm. and, and not, yeah. not just under like a very significant one, but you sort of go, you fulfill it and you leave. Like you don't really build a relationship with the place. Um, but over the next few years, I ended up spending quite a bit of time in Poland um, doing other unrelated research. And my father sort of kept nudging me over the years. He said, you know, we have these documents uh, that you should take a look at. You know, and he didn't really know what was in them. They'd been in my family for, for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Noda had looked at them in at least 20 years. Um, and he kept nudging me. Um, and eventually in 2015, he just, you know, I was just not taking care of it. He just faxed them to me. And I was right. in Poland at the time. And those documents outlined my grandfather's repeated attempts to reclaim the property from after the war until he died in the 70s. And that to me was a real turning point. I think that was like the first time in my life I had like a window into who my grandfather was. Um, And I felt very like unexpectedly moved uh, sort of reading those documents and tracing that story. And so I said, you know, you know, I'm sort of in a position which he was never in. Uh, I'm able to go to Poland. I have a network here. Um, I have a lot of friends. Uh, I come here. I come here often. And so I contacted a lawyer and we began that attempt to reclaim the family property. And that's, that began in 2015 and is the bulk of it is traced in my book um, and is still ongoing till today. So can you tell us what happened, you know, when you got there? I mean, this is what we want to hear. Um, sure. So, you know, I, for a few years, the, it takes a long time. It's just very, very slow going, uh, sort of getting your documents in order. Um, and that basically my, 
so I think a lot of your listeners might have like some idea or might know some people who tried this. And so let me make a distinction that um, it is not a case of restitution. So a case of restitution involves uh, taking property back. Mm-hmm. So if a, if a property was nationalized, let's say by the Soviets or somehow through whatever means there's a new owner on the deed, that's a case of restitution, which is very, very difficult, almost impossible in Poland. Uh, there is basically no legal mechanism to take a property back. Right. Um, our case, in contrast, is a relatively straightforward inheritance claim, which means we weren't saying, you know, new owners give us the property back. We were coming to the city and saying the, the current owners are still the owners from before the war. It, basically, we were petitioning the city to update its registry. So like, according to the city's current official records, there is no owner. But oh. even if you look, sort of go to the basement of the courthouse and pull out their old ledger, where they recorded all sales, the last listed owner is my great grandfather. Oh, right. You had the proof. We were saying like, hey, guys, the last listed owner is still the owner. He's dead. So it should pass to his heirs. Um, So it's a relatively straightforward inheritance claim. Now, it did not go uh, in a straightforward manner, um, not even close. So basically, we had to prove two things to the court. Uh, Mm -hmm. We had to, one, sort of say, look, the last listed, show them who the last listed owner is. And that's pretty easy because that's their record. Yeah. But the other one was sort of uh, establish who was alive and who was dead in my family. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of my relatives, uh, you know, my great grandfather, his wife and his two kids who are my grandfather's siblings, yeah. they all died in the Holocaust. Um, there were no records. None. Right. So we didn't have any eyewitness, any eyewitness reports. We didn't know where or when or how we didn't have anything. And so basically we had to come to the course and say, give us their death certificates, basically. So we can mm-hmm. sort of establish their deaths. And so the property could be passed down. Um, and that uh, proved trickier than you of would course. think. Um, you know, with uh, even though my great grandfather would be, you know, in about 140 years old, um, it was still uh, not so simple. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And so you encountered legal, legal problems. It, yeah, I wouldn't pro, you know, a legal, an, a, 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 let's say the legal process was trickier than I had anticipated. Yeah. So, Melcha, I want to ask you, um, I don't know what the Jewish community in Poland looks like, but for example, if someone comes to New York, there are many organizations, there are shuls, there are rabbinical leaders uh, to help navigate you through the process. Uh, yeah. In your book, you mentioned that there were people who helped you, but there was a particular rabbi there who was. Kurt, I mean, I think that's the word that you use in your book about helping you. Um, were they receptive? I know that you were directed to a lawyer whose nickname was The Killer, and I thought, I thought that was very charming, especially for an elderly woman with a short haircut. Um, usually you think of The Killer as somebody, you know, brutish and, and aggressive, but the Jewish community themselves there, were they helpful? You know, were you like a celebrity for them, or were you another Jew coming from America trying to stir things up and make things harder for them than they already are? So it's a complicated question. So the rabbi you're referring to, who's Kurt, um, that that was not my um, experience. That was my grandfather's experience. That was like a letter that my grandfather wrote in the 60s, okay. um, or I, I think so, to sort of the head of the community. And the head of the community just said, basically, we can't help you. Um, so, I, I, you know, who knows? All I had was a letter. I'm sure he, I actually, kind of amazingly enough, I was giving a talk uh, a week ago 
to a group and his, that rabbi's son was on the call. And so <laughs> did you say, you know, this rabbi, he's terrible. And, you know, no, <laughs> it was, it was really incredible. this guy had been born in Sustenvich after the war. I mean, it was really an amazing, an amazing encounter. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't pass judgment. Like I, who sure. am I to pass judgment on how someone was like writing a letter in the sixties? I, I have no right. idea. So, um, but my, so it's, it is, it's a good question. It's very, very complicated. Uh, this sort of Jewish community situation in Poland, basically what happened was there was a law passed in the late nineties that returned Jewish communal property. Um, and that, those properties are worth a lot of money, um, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And so the communities are incorporated um, and they have sort of closed off ranks. So they, they just control um, a tremendous portfolio of real estate um, and they're centralized. So it's basically the Jewish community of Warsaw and the Jewish community of Krakow sort of control most of that property um, all over the country. Those, those like official communities are not, they're not good. They're like, uh, there's no, there's no person to go to and say, Hey, help me. That being said, there's a tremendous amount of organizations and, and individuals who are dedicated to helping Jews do all sorts of memory work, whatever that is. So you'll have like, whether it's, you know, genealogy or stuff like this. So like there, you know, I, I don't, there, was there a specific organization telling me? Not really, but there were like people um, who just sort of opened their doors to me, um, including activists in the U.S., you know, um, who were very helpful, a guy named Stanley Diamond, who runs an organization sure. called JRI, sure. who ended up providing me with, uh, you know, information I couldn't get anywhere else. Um, so there, there are a lot of people, and including a lot of Polish people, um, uh, a lot of Poles who are there to help. There is no, like, government organization that helps Jews reclaim property, but there's definitely uh, individuals and small organi- nonprofits, let's say. Menachem, okay. As you know, there are still folks out there who deny the Holocaust, even when the actual survivors tell, tell their own personal harrowing stories. You know, they, they, they recount uh, specific times, places, uh, things that have happened to them. So my question is, what was the reaction of readers that you know about? Did you encounter people saying, great book, but nah, no way, it's really not true? So I, no, I have not. No, that's like no one's gotten in touch with me and no one have I met like in Poland who denies, who says didn't happen. I think sort of maybe the most troubling reaction um, I'll get and I've gotten a little bit and I've encountered um, in various places is not a denial, but a, co- a sort of revisionism. Mm-hmm. And so they sort of say um, they and there's like a big reckoning in Poland, especially the, over the last few years, saying like, how do we deal with. Polish complicity. Right. And so, uh, yeah, I, the, the Holocaust denial, especially in that part of the world, and like, it's kind of crazy to deny because like you're. Yeah, well, of course, of course, but bus, there are people who still deny it. it. Yeah, that's crazy and as so, it is. But people will do sort of like a very sort of sneaky kind of revisionism of sort of saying like, oh, Polish, like Polish, well, Poland was just another victim. Like there was no instances of Polish complicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so stuff like that, or sort of like, I would, you would hear things of like, there were good Jews and there were bad Jews, just like there were good Poles and bad Poles. Mm-hmm. A sort of like uh, a very uh, noxious form of like comparative histories. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, but no, outright denialism, I I haven't, uh, not me. And I'm, but I'm also not a historian, 
And so like, right. I, I'm not, I'm not like my book is not making an argument that this happened, even though that's like an obvious foundation of it. But so like, it would be kind of strange if like a Holocaust denier picked on my book. You know, Menachem, yeah. again, it's a, in America, again, I, I keep making the comparisons. There are major Jewish newspapers and smaller ones, and everyone's <laughs> looking for a story. When you were in Poland, are there any Jewish publications who found out about what you're doing and that they're interested in covering you? Um, were you looking to make this um, a media story, but like discreetly? Because I know in your book, you talk about how you went about it and you were very discreet. And you even like your conscience was almost <laughs> troubled because you felt on some level by asking people about the history of the building you, that you're being a little bit deceitful, which, again, I think is incredibly sensitive of you. Um, so that speaks a lot about your character. But at any point, did you say, you know, I, if I create a little bit of a media buzz, a little bit of a media storm, that might help me more. Did that ever enter your process? Or did you just really try to keep this always on the low key? I'll go to court. I'll play by the rules and I'll be a nice guy. <laughs> Uh, it's an interesting question. I look, I think it's, I don't speak Polish. And so I think everything that's happening sort of over my head. Um, yeah. And also the process, like in the book, you sit down, you can read the book in a few hours, but like the process was very stretched out. And so you're talking like four years. And so, and I don't, I didn't live in Poland. I would go for a month or two months and then leave. And sort of the process just went on its own. Um, but I, yeah, there was a certain, I wouldn't, I met some interesting characters who uh, had pull, I'd say, let's say, call it, let's protexia, another word I could use here that I can't use. <laughs> right. Uh, with uh, government officials. Um, and I thought about that. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like my full-time occupation trying to do this. I wasn't an activist. I wasn't protesting. I was, was like, here's this thing. I don't have any hopes of it succeeding. And so let's see what happens. So ultimately, um, no, uh, but like now, and also look, I did some things, which I wouldn't say might get me in trouble, but you know, yeah, it might get me in trouble. <laughs> and so, uh, there were that, as soon as that happened, you're like, Ugh, you know, any publicity could really backfire. Uh, but then the day I like from 2017, um, I knew there was a book coming, um, and the book, you know, I didn't know it would take this long, but, uh, I was, yeah, sort of like after once that you, once you have that book deal, you f sort of feel relieved of your obligation to publicize. Cause you're like, that is coming at the end. Right. Nachum, many mm -hmm. people have no clue that there was much family property stolen from the victims of the Holocaust. People were dispossessed of what was truly theirs. And as a child of Holocaust survivors, myself, I grew up hearing the harrowing tales from family members what I'm asking you, Menachem, is I'm sure that your book validated the pain of other families, but are you aware of others who felt motivated to reclaim family property too? Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard dozens or hundreds of stories over the years of people who've either, um, it's like a story in their family and that they've always wanted to, or that they've tried, and also this is a smaller number, but have succeeded. Um, and in, not only in Poland, in other countries. And so... Every, other, every country is its own sort of very specific kind of mess and like how they deal with these sort of claims. Um, but in Poland, yeah, I know people who've successfully reclaimed property, um, but you just, yeah, I, you just, I, it feels like every family uh, has a story of lost property or lost belongings. Um, and often, unfortunately, they, they won't have the documentation. The family won't be united. Like there'll be, a, it's just, it's a long shot. 
um, which is a shame, but like logistically it's just going to be, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult for most people. And I was lucky enough that I was spending, you know, quite a bit of time in Poland. I was on the ground. Um, and I, you know, I had the opportunity uh, to pursue this. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you also in your book, you go in also in a different direction that was very cool in the, uh, the treasure hunt under the tunnels. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, this is like coming out of a completely different area. Um, and you met these people who, and again, this is a very great, this is a great story. Tell us if you would about this treasure hunt. And it got to a point where um, the guys were talking amongst themselves because you had asked a question and all of a sudden you're hearing them talking Polish, which you don't understand, but they keep saying the name Kaiser. And tell us where that goes to, because that was also like, oh, and oh my God. I was was sitting with these treasure hunters um, and I I had really contacted them for for nothing again, uh, because I was curious. At the time I was writing a novel and I thought this would be a really interesting piece of the novel, nothing to do with my family. Um, But I was, and so they showed me these crazy tunnels and we had like this very bizarre two days together. And then we were just sitting around and they said, you know, they were talking in Polish um, and they kept using the word Kaiser and they did not know my last name. So they were not referring to me. Uh, and eventually while they're speaking Polish, I stopped them and I said, well, you know, what's up? Why, uh, why are you guys saying, keep saying my last name? And they were like sort of shocked that I hadn't heard of Abraham Kaiser, you know, the guy they were talking about. And Abraham Kaiser was a slave laborer who worked on these tunnels. Um, and while he was working on the tunnels, he kept a secret diary. Um, and he survived the war. And after the war, he collected these scraps uh, from the camps um, and he assembled them. He brought them to an editor and they were published in Poland in the early 60s. And because these tunnels, uh, because there's virtually no primary documentation on these tunnels, his Abraham Kaiser's diary has become a kind of sacred text among the treasure hunter community. Um, and so he is a, like a mythological figure, like just, they all know his name. They all read his book. They all study his book. Um, like I would meet guys who read it 40 times. Uh, and so basically, and then, you know, I had all these documents because of, uh, my reclamation efforts and I was able to piece the family tree together. And it emerged that Abraham Kaiser was my grandfather's closest surviving relative. Um, you know, they were first cousins. You know, as I was reading the book and looking at the pictures, you know, it, uh, it reminded me of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> um, you have these magnificent, you know, the tunnels were great. The pictures were fantastic. And I was wondering, you know, did people actually find things or was this just like a mythological place? Like there were tunnels, but did people ever really find treasure there? Does any government say that, you know, these tunnels are in our territory? Because you showed the map where, and I, again, I forgot how to pronounce it, Seseslia. So that's Silesia. Silesia. It's like almost part of three different countries, I think. So right. does anyone control it? Is it part of a tourist attraction? Mm-hmm. Do people find things? I mean, the tunnels were tremendous. <laughs> this is a great question. So Silesia is mostly in Poland. Um, and mo- these tunnels are all very much in Poland. Now, this was Germany before the war. But, you know, today no one's arguing that it's Polish land. So Poland has a law that anything in the ground uh, belongs to the state. Uh, wow. Well, it's no, there's an interesting wrinkle. It's anything in the ground that it makes sense that it's there. So if you find like a World War II artifact, that belongs to the state. If you found like a Chinese coin, doesn't belong to the state. Right. But like if it's in an attic, for example, if you found it in an abandoned house, doesn't belong to the state. It has to be in the ground. So there are seven of these tunnels. Um, they're all government property. Three, now four of them are open to the public. And sort of man- three of those are managed sort of like a state park. 
And so you could go, you visit, you tourist. There's like guides, like very sober, responsible. One of them is run by like uh, a really strange guy. I don't know how he got a lease, but he did. And he runs it sort of like a theme park. So that one is a little bit less tasteful. And then the remaining three are not open to the public. You just sort of have to know the coordinates, um, go uh, like at your own peril, um, you know, with the appropriate equipment. Um, Menachem, and, yeah. Yeah. Menachem, I'm always very curious about what happens in the background. Did you receive any resistance while writing this book? Um, resistance how? Resistance from people that uh, knew you were writing the book or did you just keep it a secret? Definitely didn't keep it a secret. I think the, the story, I think for most people, the story is so weird that they just sort of like, they would hear treasure hunters and they wouldn't even know what to ask. Um, but I, yeah, I, there's resistance was one, I think, you know, if you're ever writing about Polish Jewish relationships, let's say people are going to be very sensitive. And so I wouldn't say resistance, but I would say people are like, what are you like, what are you trying to do with this property? Um, or do people live there? Uh, like how do you feel about that? And then like on in the U S where I would say the Jewish narrative is more predominant um, no resistance. I think the, the closest I would come to resistance, I think people were like maybe less than thrilled that I was spending so much time in Poland. And I seem to be, um, not sympathetic, but I seem to be more open-minded, uh, to sort of the Polish experience and Polish narrative than they mm-hmm. would have liked. Right. So that, that was the pushback yeah. I received, but no, no one was like, can't believe you're writing this. I think everyone was like, oh, it sounds weird. I'm excited <laughs> to read it. Right. Um, what is it like today for the Jewish community? I know that uh, I think I've heard you speak before. We said that uh, people there are very nice and friendly. And I ask because I know people that go on these tours of the camps yeah. and see that they do encounter people who trust, who, who go by and they heckle them and they make other unfriendly gestures. But in your yeah. book, you don't, you say that it's quite people that were actually very friendly. So how is the Jewish community there today? When you were walking around doing your own research, did you find other remnants or other um, people that say, you know, see this park over here, you know, this and this happened during the Holocaust? Or was your main focus primarily just about your grandfather's uh, property? Or again, did you find other um, places there that also had significance or that were being protected or being seen as landmarks uh, to the memory of uh, the Jewish community there? Yeah, I think if um, once you sort of spend time, and I spent a lot of time in Poland over the last decade, and so, but once you spend a significant amount of time there, you start really appreciating that like these aren't isolated sites, like like the it's basically a blanket. I mean, so like uh, just if if you know what you're looking for, or if you have someone to point it out, there are just thousands and tens of thousands of sites of that should be memorialized, and so like. It's unavoidable, um, uh, especially the more you become aware. Uh, and so I did extensive traveling, um, particularly in Silesia. And so, yeah, there's some, there's, uh, I mean, like in that little town, uh, there was like three concentration camps within walking distance. I, I mean, so we're talking just, con- and some of them are somewhat memorialized. Most of them are not. Um so yeah, it's it's sort of unavoidable uh, to sort of encounter places of significance, um, and you're going to sort of encounter different attitudes towards what we should do, and those are those could be sometimes tricky questions. And so, like, there's like one place called Pashov uh, in Krakow, which was a killing field, which is like a very lovely national park, but it's mm-hmm. uh, you know it's it's very beautiful now, but 
it's sort of a staggering once you know the history just to spend time there and just see people like sunbathing. Menachem, I was wondering um, why you chose to write this book as a memoir rather than a novel. And also, what do you personally love most about the book? Every writer's got something in there that they just love the most. That's a great question. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a, a question, you know, writing as a memoir instead of a novel. It's one I address directly in the book itself uh, because I felt, uh, you know, the, the problem with nonfiction is that you sort of need the world to cooperate with you. Right. And so I had like, I sort of embarked on a, on a story with a pretty defined mission. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to get this building back or I'm going to fail at getting the building back. Um, but, you know, just the real world did not cooperate. And I sort of kept getting stymied and it kept feeling like very frustrating that the sort of narrative that I was basing everything on just kept slipping away. Um, so, yeah, I like I have this experience like with a novel, you could sort of skip all that. You can make it up. And I also had this more central problem of like, I don't know my grandfather. And so like in a novel, I'm, I would be allowed to sort of make things up like I wouldn't have mm-hmm. to invent it. Like I could just invent it. Uh, with nonfiction, I'm sort of left with an ignorance. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like, I'm actually very happy. Uh, it's a memoir, not a novel, because I think it forced me um, into some, like, uncomfortable places. Um, and so with a novel, you can't have a novel without, an, like, a, you, you're sort of going to need a resolution. It's impossible mm-hmm. to imagine a novel that doesn't have a, a neat, a relatively neat resolution. And my memoir does not. Um, and I was sort of forced into much more difficult truths to interrogate what I was doing and why. Um, with the novel, I sort of w- would have gone the easiest route. And then, um, yeah, and also, well, yeah, and let's see. And then the, the, what do you love favorite, most about it? I think sort of like the most surprising um, and part that I feel like most tender towards is like finding out, learning more about Abraham Kaiser and his relationship with the woman who saved him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had like the incredible opportunity to meet the children of the woman who saved him. Yeah. I went to Berlin and I sat with them. They're all in their eighties. Um, and they mm-hmm. talk and they all knew Abraham Kaiser personally. Um, and then like, I did not know any of this before going to Berlin and they, you know, Abraham Kaiser stayed for a few years um, after the war with the woman who saved them. And they had like a very, very special relationship. Oh, that's and beautiful. so, yeah, to me, that was like a hidden gem of the story that yeah. uh, I feel very lucky to have been able to uncover. Yeah. Okay. Anything else, Bela? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. I, I, now, this is this is a, a bit personal. Um, what was your family's reaction, Menachem? Were they supportive of your research and writing? They're definitely. They were definitely supportive. I, you know, um, my family isn't a particularly sentimental family, and so like everyone cared very deeply. But this, no one in my family ever felt like it was all that important to go back to these towns. You know, my. My grandparents very, you know, adamant, were very adamant of never going back to the town. And so, and, but, and, you know, my, I don't believe, I don't think anyone besides me has ever gone back to Sosnovich. And it wasn't considered like a, you know, it was nice to go, but by no means mandatory. So I think when I started undertaking this, I think everyone, everyone was supportive. I think they were bemused. <laughs> I think that yeah. would be like, they were like, this seems like a pipe dream. It seems like interesting, but obviously not, nothing is ever going to come of it. Uh-huh. Um, and at the time, so they were skeptical. Not, it wasn't even skeptical. It was like that's an interesting, yeah, like thing. whatever, you yeah, know. <laughs> right. um, but you know, and then two years later, I got the book deal, and so it became a little bit more ah, real. And then, okay. 
two years after three years after that, the actual book came out and it's, it's sort of um, it's gotten, I think more attention than people had anticipated. And so I, I, yeah, I think people, yeah, like especially my family have started relating to the project and the book uh, very differently. And I think they're starting to see it as like a sort of memorial Um, and like a, a certain kind of pride that our family story is now sort of made permanent um, and we're able to share in this way. And so, yeah, very, very supportive. Like every family has, uh, especially an extended has their wrinkles. Mm -hmm. And so some things were a little complicated and I I talk about a little bit in the book, um, but you know, it's, and I was very nervous about that, but it's gone uh, better than I could have hoped. Yeah. We're sadly out of time. Menachem Kaiser, thank you for joining us today. May your grandfather's neshama have an aliyah. You are surely bringing him tremendous nachas and Gan Eden. And please say I, the name of the book again. Yes, absolutely. I'm getting to that. Um, I yeah. thank our listeners for tuning in. And I urge everyone to get the book, Plunder, a Memoir of Family Property, a Nazi Treasure. Thank you to vinews.com for our show being their official podcast. And as we remember those who perish, let us all vow to never forget and to keep telling and retelling the story from generation to generation. Have a good day. Thank you, everyone, again. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.